Good evening and welcome to the show, everybody. Happy St. Patrick's Day. All right. Got a jam-packed show tonight. We're going to be talking about uh, terms of vaping stuff, FEMA letter, that's pressuring flavor companies to stop selling to e-liquid manufacturers, and that's actually started to happen. Talk a little bit about that. Going to get an uh, update from Zach about what's going on in New Hampshire. Uh, seems as if there's actually some good news since the very bad news. So uh, uh, Zach will uh, update us on that. Going to talk about the future of poker. Very exciting game that I believe is about to blow up. It's already started. Uh, but I, I think that this is, uh, even for non-poker players, It's this is one of those games that's not really poker, uh, but involves you know poker stuff, poker hands. Anyway, it's going to blow up. And uh, like I said, even if you're not a poker player, this is something you can play on your phone and it is hours of entertainment. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, anyway, uh, what else? Uh, if uh, I don't know if I said it or not. The, oh, yeah, the FDA. Uh, they did that workshop last week. We're going to get an update on that from Ed and an update on VIA. Um, a couple other things. The usual roundup. But what I'd like to start with tonight is I want to talk a little bit about Robert Durst. You've probably seen him, the name pop up in your in your news feed whatever you use and maybe you read about it maybe you didn't um i if you if you have okay if you haven't hold off on reading anything about him for a little bit because you gotta you gotta watch this this like true crime documentary that was done on him this was on hbo so you know you can stream it on hbo go if you got that if you don't have that you got to get a friend's username and password or if you must go to the pirate bay they're all up there but anyway this is a it, now it was a tv show but it's not the normal kind of tv show it's not like a you know you're gonna get strung out for six seasons and you know stop caring about it but you're still in but no no six episodes about 45 minutes each so it's about four and a half hours what it really is is a four and a half hour movie that's you know broken up nicely into six episodes so I really think of it more as a as a movie, and uh, they don't waste time in that four and a half hours. Man, this is this is the most interesting story in the world today, as as far as I know, the most interesting thing. Period. So where do I start? Um, you know, I'm not gonna get, don't don't worry about the spoilers too much because I won't give away I won't give away too much. If you haven't watched the show, go get the show. It, highly highly recommend it i recommend it more than anything more than it's it's more interesting and entertaining in a morbid way than any movie than any TV. it's the best thing i've ever seen period so who is this guy robert durst he's a guy who's born into the durst family which is a very um wealthy and powerful new york uh, family that does a lot of commercial real estate as a matter of fact they just built the the Freedom Tower, the replacement for the for the World Trade Center. So they're they're very much active, very much powerful. They own um, billions of dollars of of real estate. It's a multi billion dollar company. They're a big deal. So Durst was born into this family, and he was set to take over the organization as the as the CEO from his father, as the old eldest son. But for whatever whatever reason, he didn't, and I don't think that made him very happy. Now, what 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 happened was 
you know, what, what led to that, I don't know, but he had a, a, a very fucked up childhood, um, basically watched his mother get murdered, a, a whole bunch of other stuff. So I'm not too surprised that the guy screwed up, but what he has done and where the story is now, it's just, listen, like I said, the Jinx, which is the HBO documentary on him, Jinx, J-I-N-X, that's the documentary. That's over. All six episodes have aired. But the story is just starting. It's just starting now, really. Or it's just starting to continue now. It's it's okay, so where where do I start? So the 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 guys who made this documentary have been researching Robert Durst's life for over ten years. Now they did make a movie which wasn't very good and didn't really have all it was okay. It was an okay movie. Um, but that, but they started doing their research 10 years ago for the movie and then continued it since the movie. Now, something very peculiar happened, and that is, you know, after the movie was made, a couple, few, couple years went by, and they said, we're going to make this documentary. And it was actually Robert Durst, who was suspected of multiple murders. He actually contacted them. They didn't even, they didn't even call him. He contacted them and said, I want to be on your documentary. You can interview me. Now, this is something that is virtually unheard of. When somebody is a, a suspect in multiple unsolved murder cases where he's basically the main suspect, you don't talk to anybody. You talk to your lawyer. That's it. To actually, you know, walk into a room, sign uh, sign off uh, waivers. So they, you don't, you don't do that. But... You will, you know, it's it's a long list of things that just don't make sense with this guy. So basically he had a wife who was having big marriage troubles with her. One day she just disappears. And, uh, you know, at, at at the time he was able to, basically there's no body. That's, that's basically the, there's no body. So there's really no, there are no open leads until they find any evidence. And you need, you need a body. They don't have it. A lot of questions were asked at the time, but, Nothing to charge him with. As time went on, he he uh, he basically had a a very close friend, probably his best friend, was a confidant, and uh, there was news that there was a the, the DA in New York was trying to dig up some more information about this case, and they had scheduled an interview with this friend of Robert Durst, who lived in California. He had been financially supporting her. Was very you know it was, it was his best friend basically. So when word got out that the DA in New York, who is reopening the case, wanted to talk to her and scheduled an appointment, she even told him, she said, hey, they're coming to talk to me. What should I say? And he said, you know, do what you have to do. Nobody knows what she knew because suddenly after that appointment was scheduled and just before she was about to meet with the, with the DA, Robert Durst flew to California and suddenly she's dead. More about that in a minute. Um, again, uh, there were, now this time there was a body and everything, but there was no other evidence. And just because a guy's in the state of California, you can't put him there, can't charge him with a crime. But he was still, uh, you know, all, now two murders stacked up against this guy. He starts to have problems. You know, his family disowns him, basically. Um, he's hounded by the press. He goes on the run, not from the law, just from basically from his life. He didn't. It seemed like he didn't want to be Robert Durst anymore. He uh, he got in a car and he drove to Texas, and he settled down 
and Galveston. Now, this Robert Durst, this is a, a guy who's got multiple millions of dollars. He ends up um, cutting off all his hair, dressing up as a woman to avoid people from finding out who he is, and renting a, a, a room in a really shitty motel in Galveston, Texas. Became friends with Morris Ellis, a, a, a gentleman uh, who lived there also, kind of like a, cr a cranky old guy, and they became very good friends. What happened after some period of time is that this guy's body parts all popped up in garbage bags into, into the uh, Galveston Bay. So you got chopped up pieces of this guy, except the one that you got arms and legs and torso. One thing they didn't have was a head. So he didn't know who he was at first, but they were they found some other clues or something, and they figured out it was him. At that point, Robert Durst, um, he's arrested, and after he post posts bail, he goes on the run, right? She, you know, basically disguises himself, get gets in her car, and goes. Now, he was arrested. He was apprehended a little bit later after being on the run for some time. Now, here's here's just the. the one of so many crazy things. He was arrested, not because somebody spotted him or recognized him or anything like that. He was arrested at a Wegmans because he stole a sandwich and a newspaper. Now keep in mind, in the trunk of his car, he had $50,000 cash. In his pocket, he had $500. Yet he goes to a supermarket and shoplifts a sandwich. And he admits, he said, he, he, he never said, I forgot to pay. No, he said, I didn't feel like paying. And this is just one of several things, I think, as, as the story develops and it will continue to over time. This, I think basically what this guy is, he's just somebody who gets off on risk and getting, and getting away with things. Because now they finally got him, right? So they bring him back. They're not getting out on bail now. You can't can't jump jump bail and you know he's 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 not going anywhere and he goes on trial for murder so here's the remarkable thing he admits he fully admits cuz they found all this evidence they found saws and he admits i dismembered the body i threw it in the bay he admits all this stuff it's as much of a slam dunk case as you can possibly have he got the guy who killed somebody chopped up his body parts, the, the, the whole nine. He went on the run, for Christ's sake. He was acquitted. I mean, this looks... I mean, I know they acquitted OJ, but I mean, this is like... Guy admitted to it. How do you get off on this? How do you, how do you get an acquittal? His defense team mounted this brilliant defense. Now, one thing you'll almost never see in a murder trial, you never see the, uh, the, the accused... They never take the stand because you, you don't want to be cross-examined. But this legal team, I'm telling you, man, he got the best lawyers in the world, and they, they he, who, whatever, he concocted the story where he made a, a, he made a case that he, yes, he chopped up the body parts. Yes, he killed them, but it was self-defense, and he, and he came up with this, this elaborate story of how the other guy basically, uh, they were they they became very friendly. He confided in him that he was Robert Durst, not this woman, and he eventually stopped cross dressing. 
And uh, they were friends. And then one day this guy got evicted because he couldn't pay his rent. Came to Robert and he said, well, you're Robert Durst. You're a millionaire. Can you help me out? Can you give me some money? And the same guy who you might think wouldn't be dumb enough to shoplift a sandwich uh, happened to be the same guy who did not want to help his friend with any money at all. Okay, that's his right. Anyway, he makes the he makes the case that one day he came home after the guy was evicted and he's this guy sitting in his apartment. Robert Durst says, what the fuck are you doing here? The guy says, I'm not going anywhere. You give me money. And then he came up with a story. How they, they, the other guy had the gun and they struggled and they fell down and the gun went off and shot the other guy in the head. Now, the defense has a very, is in a tricky spot. They have to disprove what he's saying that it was self-defense in this, this documentary. They should, they're showing all the cross-examination uh, uh, testimony. This guy is, he's a crazy motherfucker, but he's not stupid. He knows exactly how to talk to a lawyer when he's on the stand. It was masterful. The jury really didn't have any excuse, uh, any, anything to do but find him not guilty. They put the they put the prosecution on the spot. You at this point you have to disprove that this was self defense. There's no murder, and they can't even do it through forensics because there's no head. They can't they can't do the testing to see what you know if if it was his story was true. When it's a very close range, you can you can see on the head. You just you know the you know gunpowder. You got all kinds of forensics you could do. They didn't have a head, and it's and it's and it's just crazy. You know, think and you know. He said, you know, well, I, I shot the guy, and I figured I was just gonna, you know, take take his body and uh, and carry him away. Now he's an old guy. This is Robert Durst. He's like he's in his seventies now, I think. So at the at the time he was a little bit younger, but still, he's like, I can't carry this body. It's I I can't physically do it. So he said I had to chop it up and throw it in the bay. And it's funny, like you could hear his lawyer saying, you know, he's not on. You know, my client's not on trial for dismembering a body. He's on trial for murder and this is self-defense anyway the jury let him off they really didn't have much of a choice either uh it's fucked up i mean he likely perjured the fuck out of himself his lawyers were up to god knows what up god knows what else but jesus so he's out right he's a free man three murders three murders where he's the prime suspect one where he admitted to killing somebody and dismembering and somehow he is walking the earth freely with no 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 criminal shit. Now he had to do a little bit he did have to do a little bit of time like a couple of years for jumping bail, right? So he's a convicted felon for that. But uh 2 years for three murders that ain't bad. So this is why it's so so crazy that he's a free man and he just, he decides to go to the people making this documentary. Say, I want to talk to you. And did he talk? Um, basically, these interviews, you know, the show just finished airing um, Sunday. Sunday was the last of the six episodes. Those interviews that he did with them, he knew everything that happened during these interviews and the shocking ending, which I won't really give too much away on, the shocking ending, he knew what he said. He had two years to get the fuck out of this country, which he had. He should have known. You got to get out of here. He had two years. He was arrested 
um, on Saturday, just the day before the ending, the, uh, the, the, the finale aired. He was arrested. Why, where, where was he arrested? He was arrested on, on Saturday in New Orleans, Louisiana. Now, why was he in New Orleans on Saturday? Well, there's a likely a very good reason. On Saturday in New Orleans was the first day since uh, 1958. The first day since 1958 where a person would be able to take a flight to Cuba. That day, he was in New Orleans. They found him in his, uh, the FBI actually tracked him down, found him uh, in a hotel under an assumed name. How's that for timing? The, fir the, the first day in decades, he's, he's able to, to take a flight to Cuba. The day before the, it's, the, day before the series finale, it's incredible. Uh, there's a documentary, this is an older one, it's at least 10 years old called The Thin Blue Line. Uh, and it's about uh, police in a small town nabbed the wrong guy. They knew he was the wrong guy for murder. And this documentary actually led to his release. And I thought of The Thin Blue Line. Uh, the, the themes are different, but the, the thing that these two stories have in common are that not through, um, you know, through the work of private citizens making a movie um, was able to change the course of justice um, in the thin blue line, getting an innocent an innocent man free. In the case of the Jinx, likely in getting a guilty man actually brought to justice. Why he why he waited so long? To, to I mean, gosh, the guy's got means. In two years, he didn't need to wait to fly to Cuba. He could have done anything. He could have gone to Mexico, taken a flight to Cuba. Could have gone to Fucking Argentina could have gone anywhere, you know? Who knows? Why do you steal a sandwich when you have $50,000 on you, basically? You know, I, I don't I don't understand those kind of things. Interesting, when, when he was busted, now, he's going to go, you know, what happens, you know, they, they, they arrested him for the murder of uh, Susan Berman in California because of some of the evidence and new information that came out from this show, things that the police missed. These film documentarians they got, and it's because of that information that he was a uh, that he was arrested. But he will go to jail. I, I don't know about the murder case. We'll see about that. He is going to jail for because uh, when he was caught in New Orleans, he had a gun on him. He cannot have a gun. He's a convicted felon because he jumped the bail, and he had um, over five ounces of marijuana. Now every time this guy has ever been. Ever been caught by the law? He's always got weed on him. This guy, this guy, he's a stoner, man. Who has five? Listen, he don't have five ounces of weed to sell, you know? Five ounces, that's over a quarter pound of weed. That's like when I, when I was in school, we used to get 10 guys together to get, get a quarter pound so we could save a few bucks. I mean, this guy's just carrying, that, that's his stash. <laughs> you can't make this shit up. Anyway, so between the gun and the weed, he's going to jail. Um, that's not what's interesting, though. It's, what's going to be interesting is going to be the murder case. Because, listen, man, they
they had this guy dead to rights. They had this guy with the body parts and the, the, the whole thing, and he got off on that. Anyway, it's what's so remarkable about this is that the, the guys making the documentary, you could tell in the first few episodes, there is, you know, you listen to him, Durst, you listen to him, and you, you know he's, he's a crazy person, but there certainly is at least reasonable doubt from the things that he's saying, that, that you might say, okay, maybe it wasn't him with his wife. Maybe it wasn't him with his with his friend. Maybe it was, who knows, maybe it was somebody powerful in his family's organization. I mean, these are reasonable things to, to believe. And I think the filmmakers kind of felt that way also towards the beginning of the project. But then as time went on, and man, did they dig their heels in and getting this evidence. They got this one, I mean, like they got the... the they found basically something that's just just about dead to rights and they showed it to him and they got his they got his reaction on camera and it's a remarkable reaction he, he almost immediately when they show it to him becomes violently ill you know almost to the point where he can't hold down you know he almost starts vomiting it's 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 remarkable you're watching this and they uh they leave the he had the he had to go to the bathroom. He left his le, little uh, lapel microphone on, and he had done this in the past, where they had left the room. They're they're taking a break between things, and he starts talking to himself, and it gets caught on the microphone. This happened earlier, and 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 his lawyers come out and they say, "Hey, listen, they can hear everything you're saying. Your mic's still alive." And he's, "Oh, okay, yeah, yeah." He didn't really say anything bad the first time. The second time, he basically when he went to the bathroom, more or less. I don't know how this works legally, but. He's talking to himself and well, you'll, you'll hear it and you can make your own conclusion, but he, it, it sure as hell sounds like he is confessing to all of the murders to himself while he's on this little lapel camera, uh, the lapel microphone. Does that hold up in court? I have no idea. I watched some shows and one lawyer said, absolutely not. Another said, yes, basically it comes down to was there a reasonable expectation of privacy? Now, normally when you go to the bathroom, there is certainly a reasonable expectation of privacy. However, you've got a lapel mic on you and this has happened before and you can make the case that, I don't know. I don't know if it would be admissible and even if it is admissible, it wouldn't take an, it wouldn't even take a good lawyer to say, well, this was the dialogue he was having in his head and he was in no way, I don't know, we'll see. That, that, that's That's the, oh my God, oh my fucking God, you know, TV show part of it that just makes it unbelievably compelling television. The evidence is going to be hard for them to beat. Like I said, this just started. He was arrested in New Orleans. Um, the FBI tracked him down, not for the gun and the weed, but for the murder. Um, he has been charged with murder one. Uh, the death penalty is an option. Um, I don't know. The more I read about this guy, the more I just think he likes it. I just think he likes getting away with shit. I like. I think he likes taking risks. Uh, there, there's, there's so much. There is so much to the story. You, you have to watch it, and then you can continue to watch. This trial will be going on for I don't know, next year or so. It should be. Uh, it should be absolutely um, riveting. Now, there's some interesting things that happened since. Since he was arrested in New Orleans, you know, I've, I'm trying to keep up on the news. 
So here is this. This is from the Associated Press. Now, the Associated Press is basically the number one newswire in America. They don't take any chances. That it's quite dry. No opinion. They state the facts and they generally get them right. It's the AP. So I'm reading and I see this tweet it's on the, it's on their Twitter, and at first I thought it was a joke. It wasn't. Listen to this. I, and I swear this is not shtick. This really happened. Here is the release from the AP when he was arrested. New Orleans Associated Press. A Louisiana state police trooper says millionaire Robert Durst has been booked on weapons and charges that state on top of a first-degree murder charge lodged by Los Angeles authorities, Trooper Melissa Mady told the Associated Press the Associated Press that an arrest warrant was issued for the former Limp Biscuit frontman and was rebooked in the Orleans Parish Jail Monday under two new charges. Now, if you did not hear me say that, I did not make that up. Trooper Melissa Mady told the Associated Press that an arrest warrant was issued for the former Limp Biscuit frontman and was rebooked. And then it started to make sense to me. Robert Durst had disguised himself as a 40-year younger new metal pioneer. He's this guy. <laughs> only, only a true sociopath could make music like this. Later on, the Associated Press made the following um, the following correction. In the second item of the California 10th News Minute, sent March 16th to users of the state broadcast wire, the Associated Press reported erroneously that Robert Durst is a member of a band. He is a real estate heir. Fred Durst is the former frontman of Limp Bizkit. Um, Fred Durst is, uh, is actually getting to, getting ready to release a, uh, studio album that's been tied up for some time called Stampede of the Disco Elephants, which will appear on ClickBang After Hours, never, ever, ever. A little bit of, a little bit of more comedy from, uh. This is from Funny or Die. Here is their, they, they actually have extended audio footage of the bathroom conversation that Durst had with himself. Or maybe this is the bathroom. Yeah, You're true. right, this is the bathroom. This is Robert Durst here. Well, there it is. You're caught. What the hell did I do? <laughs> I pushed my mommy off the roof as a kid. I am Kaiser Soze. Blink, blink. I murdered John Benet Ramsey. Of course. Of course I did. 
Alright. Bye-bye, PP. Blink. I'm gonna kill that documentary guy as soon as this show airs. <laughs> I was the Blair Witch. I'm gonna steal this nice lavalier microphone. 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 And all the batteries in it. They're all mine now. <laughs> Durst. They're all Robert Durst. To be clear, earlier when I mumbled to myself I killed them all, I was referring to my first wife, Kathy, Susan Berman, Morris Black, and Heyman Lee. Poor Adnan. Uh, excuse me, I'm in the stall. Did you just admit to killing a bunch of people? Ah, oh, crap. I gotta kill that guy now. Hey, Wait, come, come here! Oh, no! Ah, jeez. Oh, I'm a little teapot. I'm gonna do a whip it. Blink. Blink. Everyone else blinks weird. That's pretty good. Anyway, believe it or not, that's not far off from the actual audio of himself in the bathroom. Anyway, that, that, and here, and, and it even, even after all that, it still, it gets even weirder. So the guys with the documentary, right? They, 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 the guys arrested millions of people watching the finale. He's booked for a month of Sundays on every talk show on Jimmy Fallon or, or was it Jimmy Kimmel or one of those. So he starts making a couple media appearances and he says that that tape of him in the background, they didn't even find it for two years or it was reported in the New York times. I don't know. They got a quote. They didn't find it for two years after the, you know, after the, uh, the, the recording was, was made. It was kind of an accident that they found it. Some sound tech found it. And then they start asking him questions because it didn't match up with the timeline. And then suddenly the producers of the show cancel all interviews. This is like fucking unheard of. And it makes no sense. What, what, why would they lie about it? Why would they care? Why would they care to lie about it? They clearly have the tape. Who cares if, it, and, and then he said, well, maybe it was months after. And then all the, all the interviews stopped. Who would care? Who would care if you found it that day? Who would care if you found it two years later? It's interesting, I guess, but who gives a shit? And why, when you're poised to get more attention for your show than ever, do you just black out? Media blackout. It is the most interesting story in the world today. Trust me. Watch the jinx. You won't regret it. Okay. Enough of that. Let's start the show. What's going on, everybody? Yes, I'm going down. Yeah. I'm going down, 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 down. Got my big feet in the window. Hello. Got my head on the ground. 
was that? All right, so where we uh, where we left off a couple of weeks ago, we're going to pick off tonight, pick up tonight. I had Zach on from New Hampshire, and we were both pretty disgusted about what went on or what didn't go on in New Hampshire. They introduced all this horrible legislation that would ban uh, vaping and smoking, but as far as we're you know primarily concerned, it would ban ban vaping in all public places accessible to the public. Uh, on top of that, ban vaping in private clubs, you know, close that loophole. Uh, you wouldn't be allowed to even vape in a vape shop. And then all these taxes. And um, what Zach and I were so upset about was the fact that nobody really showed up at the hearing. It was like Zach and one other guy testifying and mad vapes and no other vape shop. And we were steamed because everyone knew about this and nobody did anything. Well, I'm happy to have Zach back on tonight for some good news. Um, are you there, Zach? Oh, yeah, there's. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Yeah. Welcome back to the show, sir. So listen, fill us in. No, thanks for having me. Sure, sure. Fill us in on uh, what has happened since you came on last. It seems like there's been a lot of good positive attraction and looks like there might be some good results. Uh, get us caught up. All right. Um, so when we talked, it was a Tuesday right after the uh, SB 105 hearing, which was the indoor smoking bill mm -hmm. amendment. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that, that was kind of the flop. And I went to town on people and started, you know, calling around to shops and rallying support because we had found out that there was actually a, um, a budget hearing when, when the governor had proposed the state budget for New Hampshire, she had snuck in this, this nice little thing that redefines tobacco products to include e-cigarettes e mm-hmm and then tax them over rated of, I think, at 73.94% yep. on the wholesale cost. So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty hefty tax, and, and they just snuck it right in there. And um, we kind of dropped the ball on finding out when the hearing was, so we only had a day to prepare. But for the first hearing, um, I had no less than 17 people show up. For, for less just, than just to go and and be part of this hearing to yeah. write down their their opposition to it, um, uh, Ryan Smith from Substyle Vapors showed up with T-shirts and talking points. Um, the the support was really fantastic. That is, and that's for for less than twenty four hours notice. That's remarkable. It, the it was it was a complete one eighty rush uh, from from what I saw on SB one hundred five to the the support that was on. Uh, on the HB0002 or whatever it is. Yeah, um, Just amazing. And then <laughs> there was actually a second hearing um, for the same bill in um, in Derry. Uh, I think it was the following Monday. And for that one, <laughs> it was an even more impressive showing. Um, we had probably close to 20 to 25 people show up. Um, we had speakers from... Uh, lineage. We had speakers from uh, Substyle and the Cloud Lounge. Um, Anthony Pino, I believe he spoke with him after our first hearing. Mm -hmm. It's the the same guy. Um, he went up and spoke um, on behalf of Bumblefrog, and it was just it was it was amazing to see that kind of I'm getting ahead of myself. That kind of response. Um, you know, after after the disappointment I have, um, our plans moving forward is we have um, we have a organizational meeting going on uh, this Thursday 
where we're going to basically set up the uh, the structure of the New Hampshire Vape Advocacy Group, which is uh, it's, <laughs> it's it's looking really promising. Excellent, excellent, and and yeah. I know there's been some conversations with the with the lawmakers and the and the status of each of those two bills. Can you can you give us an update on on where they are and what's likely to happen? Um, okay. Well, SB 105 is, um, it was already voted on the committee that we spoke in front of. It was the Health and Human Services Committee, I believe, for mm-hmm. the state. And uh, those senators, uh, after hearing all the testimony, actually voted the bill, uh, what's called ITL, which is uh, political talk for, nope, don't do it. Mm-hmm. So the bill now gets sent to the full Senate with that recommendation attached to it and they'll all read over it and then they'll make a final vote on it. Now, now, now given that, given, given that I found that surprising and very good news, obviously given that so few people showed up to talk for, uh, to talk on behalf of the vapors. And there were quite a few that, that spoke in favor of the bill. How did the health committee, come to this conclusion was it phone calls and emails or did they just not that's not that's very very atypical um i I can't be certain i do know that um you know just seeing the response that i got for the second bills um i'm pretty certain that they've received quite a few calls and emails from from the vapors and and business owners of new hampshire um but i think that impartial it may have to do with the uh, sponsor of the bill, uh, Senator Pierce. Um, basically, when he sat down, the first thing he said was, hey, somebody brought this to my attention that this would exclude smoking from cigar shops and hookah lounges. Mm. I'm planning on amending this, but it's not done yet. And so my school of thought is that it doesn't make much sense for any committee to approve any bill that's not even finished. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Um, well, the, 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 the that's, third thing that I, I'd like to give yeah. credit to uh, to our senators, actually, just in and of themselves being possibly open-minded to the idea that this may help people quit smoking and, and maybe it's not really a tobacco, tobacco product. Yeah, uh, it sounds like you got a little bit lucky and, and there was also some good work being done. It doesn't really matter... You, you dodged a bullet, and I'm sure when it when something does come back in front of the health committee again, that there will be uh, significantly larger uh, opposition to it, and that's good. And it sounds like you guys are mobilized and organized at this point, which is excellent. Now, as far as the tax bill is concerned, what about that? Um, the tax bill is currently in working sessions. I haven't been able to find um, any of the uh, produced or predicted changes to it yet. There have been some bumbling about some changes, but I think it, it's too early to to really uh, talk on that yet. I, I would hate to be uh, okay. misinforming people. Well, I'm sure you'll um, give so, us a, you'll so give us when an they update. finish with their working sessions, they will release the the updated budget, and and we'll take a look at it then and do what we need to do. All right. Well, thank you for the good news. Um, if anyone you know, in New England, New Hampshire, wherever, who wants to help out with this, how can, uh, what can they do? Who can they contact? Um, Well, you're welcome to contact me. Um, My name is Zachary Branscombe. You can find me on Facebook. It's probably the best way. 
Um, we've also set up a Facebook group that you're you're welcome to like and join. It is Vape NH. Um, there are multiple Facebook groups for New Hampshire vapors, but it is just Vape NH for us. Um, but can I can I take a second? Because I know um, Vermont is currently facing a bill oh, and uh, please, has to ahead. put out a call to action. Yeah, please go ahead. So if you are in the Vermont area, contact your uh, the the Ways and Means Committee, and I think it's H. Oh gosh, I have it up here. It's HB two thirty three, maybe. I pulled it up to get ready for this, and then I think I closed it. I think it's HB two two thirty three mm-hmm. um, in Vermont. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong. Don't don't crucify me. Um, but definitely call your uh, Ways and Means Committee. They need your help. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is if you're out there and your state is facing one of these bills and you don't see a lot of movement, don't wait for someone else to do it. Pick it up, start calling shops, organize something, make moves. And, you know, maybe you're not the best person for it. Somebody will come out. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll get a response as long as somebody is out there rallying. You can't just wait for someone else to do it. It's not going to work. I can't. I couldn't agree more. I, I, I see this all the time. Like, somebody should do this. Well, I don't like the way these people are doing that. And, the, you know, it's just like, do it. Do it yourself. Just do it yourself. Just do it. Just do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great, great words to live by. And um, thank you for the good news, and thank you for the update, Zach. Hey, man, thanks for having me on again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. There he goes, everybody. Zach from the uh, New Hampshire Vapors. Find them on uh, Facebook, NH Vapors. Okay, so um, I'm going to get to this uh, FDA session in a, in a second. What I want to I talk about now, it's real quick. Try to make it real quick. This is, uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about this, this new poker game that is literally lighting the world on fire. The poker world, at least. So there's a couple of games, basically, that have merged into this game. Now, the first game is called Chinese Poker. Uh, this is a... The, Chinese Poker was never particularly popular. It's a game, unlike regular poker, where there's draws and betting and things like that. Uh, Chinese Poker is a game you just get 13 cards, you take them in your hand, and then you organize them into three poker hands, a five-card hand, a five-card hand, and a three-card hand. And you literally put them one on top of each other. So you got something called a backhand, which is the one that's going to be closest, you know, physically closest to you, you know, at the table. So you, you lay that out. And then, and then there's a middle hand that goes on top of that. And finally, the three-card top hand goes on there, goes on top. The backhand has to be the strongest hand. The top hand, the three-card hand, has to be the weakest hand. And the one in the middle is the one in the middle. The three-card hand doesn't have straights or flushes, so... You know, the best you could do is three aces, but that would be awfully hard to do because if you had three aces in the front hand, you'd have to have better than three aces in the middle. And let's say you had a full house in the middle, then you'd have to have a bigger full house or even four of a kind in the back or something like that. Anyway, it's a game of getting dealt 13 cards. There's no draws and balancing the things you can find in your hand to have the base, have the best chance of winning two out of three or all three hands. That's pretty much the whole game. Not a super exciting game. It is an addictive game. Um, but it moves slowly. Uh, there are no draws. It is different than poker for sure. 
where you're looking for draws and you're betting and all that. So then somebody came out with a way to play the hand, and it's called open face poker, open face Chinese poker, uh, frequently uh, abbreviated as uh, OFC, open face Chinese poker, right? Now it's different. Now in open face, you're introducing a lot of other things, namely, um, there are draws. So what happens then now is instead of getting dealt 13 cards at once and then setting them into a group of five and a group of five and a group of three, you're only dealt five cards. So you get five cards. And now from those five cards, you can put the hands, put those cards anywhere you want. You could put, maybe you got dealt five spades. Well, you should probably put all five in the back, but that's not too likely to happen. Maybe you'll have two spades, two diamonds, and then another card. Well, you might want to try for two flush draws, put a, put the higher flush draw in the back and then the middle one in the middle and then the the extra card in the front maybe you've got those two flush draws but two of those cards that you would normally use would make a pair maybe you would consider just making one flush draw and putting a pair some there's a whole there's ways you can play that those initial five cards you're opening you have as much you, you, there you have no rules there's no you can do whatever you want whatever kind of flexibility you want you can play it very conservative you can play it very aggressive now here's the other thing about this game, regular Chinese poker, you're not really rewarded for being aggressive. You're just trying to make the best possible hand. You have 13 cards. You know exactly what they are. You're trying to balance your hand as much as possible. Not so in, in uh, open-faced Chinese poker. You are trying to structure your hand in such a way where you get as, much, as many royalties as possible. For example, um, if you're able to even make a reasonable hand like a flush in the back, that gives you bonus points. Even a straight in the back gives you bonus points. Three of a kind in the middle gives you bonus points. And pairs as small as sixes in the front will give you bonus points. So really, what you're trying to do, you're trying to aggressively go after those draws that lead to very big hands so that you can get as many points as possible off your opponent. In regular Chinese poker, generally the goal is win two out of three. If you can scoop, mazel tov. In open-faced Chinese poker, you're going and you're you're going to chase those big draws so that you can get paid big bonus monies because the two out of three is is peanuts compared to if you can construct a hand with one, two, or even three royalties, you could be looking at 25, 30 points in a hand where typically in a regular Chinese poker hand, you're happy to get four points as good. You could get seven or, you know, with a, with a royalty hand, that's fine. But the royalties are relatively rare in regular Chinese poker. They're relatively, they're extremely liberal in open-faced Chinese. So open-faced Chinese started to be played and basically the way it was played and this, uh, the game wasn't moving much when they played it this original way. They said, okay, you get five cards, all right? And then on the next draw, you get one card and you can put that anywhere else. Then you get another card and you can put that anywhere else. So at the end of the day, you're gonna have that first five cards and then there will be eight more streets, so to speak. Each one, you're getting one card to fill out the rest of your hand, okay? And that's a fine game. Uh, it's a good game. I, the way I see it, it's it's almost like a, a stud game at that point. There's no concealed information. You're seeing everything. You can see all your opponent's cards. He can see all of yours. You know, if you're playing three or four-handed, the amount of information available to you is enormous. Um, you know what cards are out there. But um, it didn't really catch on because if you think about it, it's a, it's a long process. Fine, you get those first five cards, but then 
You get one, then he gets one, then the other guy gets one. And you do that eight more times. It takes a long time to play out the hand. Wasn't that popular. Great game, not that popular. Then somebody, I don't know who, introduced a pineapple variant to open-faced Chinese poker. Now, pineapple might mean something to you Texas Hold'em players out there. There is a, an actually an excellent variant of Texas Hold'em. Everybody knows Texas Hold'em. You get two, two face-down cards. There's a three-card flop, a turn, and a river. And whoever makes the best hand wins, right? There's a, a version of Texas Hold'em called Pineapple, and uh, actually even a better one called Crazy Pineapple, where instead of being dealt two cards to start, you're dealt three cards to start. Now in Pineapple for Hold'em, you get those three cards face down, right, where normally you would have just gotten two, and you know then there's a round of betting. But before you see a flop, you have to take one of those cards and muck it. So then you're left with the regular two cards, and then play continues. Uh, there's a version even th that I prefer called Crazy Pineapple, where you actually don't discard one of those three cards until after you see the flop. So naturally, this lends itself to making much bigger hands, and that's kind of the point of any pineapple variant of any poker game is that you're dealt with more cards than you'll ultimately be left with, thus increasing the size of hands for everybody. So somebody had the genius idea of taking this pineapple, I don't know, method, I don't know what you'd call it, but the, the pineapple way of playing Hold'em, and they have introduced it to open-faced Chinese poker. So now, instead of being dealt five cards, then you get dealt one at a time until you fill out your hand, after you're dealt those five cards, the next straight, you're dealt three cards. You muck one of them and play two. So now instead of eight more streets, there's only four. So it doubles the speed of the game and drastically improves your chances of making big hands. Whereas it might not be a great idea in regular open face Chinese to go for a flush draw on the back when you just start with two flush with a with two spades. When you start with two spades in the back and open face pineapple, you're about 50-50 to fill out three more spades throughout the course of the draws that you have coming left. Keep in mind, every street, you're getting three cards, you play two of them, and duck one. So I found this, and I said, oh my God. Like, I knew about open-faced Chinese before, and I wouldn't even bother trying to get my friends into that, but with the, with the pineapple variation, the volatility of this game is ridiculous. Um... Regularly at the, the, the bar I go to, I mean, there's some nights, there's two tables going of Chinese poker, regular Chinese poker. So I'm just, it's an epidemic. <laughs> now, I've started to introduce this, this open-faced pineapple uh, variant of Chinese poker. And um, it is, uh, it's amazing. In California, they already have, as soon as the pineapple variant came out, they have now. Now, keep in mind, with the pineapple variant, you're max three players. Because uh, if you deal out the, the cards of three players, that's it. I mean, there's only one card left. There will be one extra card at the end of everything. So you can only play with three players. They've got they've got open-faced pineapple tables in casinos in California. And when you think about that, that they're dedicating a dealer for three people. Normally, a poker table, 
at a casino, they're designating one employee to 10 people, you can put 10 people at, at a poker table. In Pineapple, they are devoting an employee to a three-handed game. Um, and supposedly, it's nearly impossible to get a seat. This game has exploded in a California, and it's a, there's good reason. And there's good reason if you are a poker player that you learn this game. Because it's not like regular Chinese poker, where it's most, there's only so much you can do. There's only so much you can learn in strategy, right? And you can't control your destiny. To a game like Open Face Pineapple, where you have every, from right from the start, you could play conservative, you could play aggressive, you could play in between. Um, there, on every street, there's huge deci decisions to be made. And given the amount of information you have, where especially if you're three-handed, you can see, you know, 20, 30 cards that are dealt out of the deck. When you're down to the end, when you're down to your last street, you basically know exactly what cards are left in the deck besides the discards that your opponents have made. And you don't even need to count the cards. You just look at them. They're all on the table, you know? Um, it is. Uh, it, it, it takes Chinese poker to a, a completely different level where there's a huge amount of strategy, a huge amount of theory, and I forgot one thing that makes the, the game even more exciting, even more volatile. Besides, besides this... Uh, all the scoring and the, and the naturals and, and, and I'm sorry, and the royalties and whatnot. There is a, uh, an event that can happen in open face poke in open face Chinese called fantasy land. And yes, it's a ridiculous name. Um, but that's what it's called. I don't know. The, I think the guy who made this up is kind of like a weird guy. So fantasy land, how do you get to fantasy land? Well, if you are able to legally play a pair of Queens or better, so Kings, Queens, aces, or, if you can somehow get trips up front, God bless you. So, but if you can get a minimum of queens, a pair of queens in your front hand, the next hand you will play in Fantasyland. So, what Fantasyland is, it basically goes back to for you, goes back to kind of like regular Chinese poker, where you're at a huge advantage over your opponents. Your opponents will have to play the typical open-faced way, get five cards and then get the three-card. Uh, you know, draws and you fill out your hand. You, you don't get 13 cards. You actually get 14 cards. You duck one. But other than that, you know exactly what cards you're going to get and you can set them up any way you want. And if you ever play Chinese poker, you know it ain't that difficult to get a flush in the middle. Uh, I'm sorry, like a full house in the back, a flush in the middle. That's not hard to do when you get 14 cards. It's very hard to do when you're dealt cards, you know, a few at a time and you don't know what the rest of them are going to be. When you're dealt 14 cards at once, it's not difficult at all. So now all of a sudden, you got a full house in the back, a flush in the middle, and a high pair in the front. You're looking at 20 points, right? So you want to do everything possible to get yourself into fantasy land, which makes the opening version of the game, before you get there, you want to play as aggressively as possible to, to try at every opportunity that you have to get at least a pair of queens up front. So... This game, it is fantastic. It is aggressive. It is a, a large amount of strategy. It is exploding in California. It's going to explode everywhere. Um, and you can play it for free on one of the best designed apps I've ever seen. W when I first saw this, I'm like, first thing I think, I found a couple sites you could play uh, online, you know, for no money, just so I could get a feel for it. And none were that great. I'm like, but 
can I get this thing on my phone? Right? I want to play this on my phone on, on people with people on the internet. So I go, I start looking at all the top apps for open face Chinese, uh, uh, the pineapple variant. And there are some apps out there and I'm, 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 you know, some of them are like five, six bucks. I'm like, I'm not paying five bucks to try an app, but some of them are free. So I'm like, Oh, I'll try this one for free. This is a, pardon me. And a little Robert Durst burp there. Um, so some of these free ones, you download them and they let you pay like, they, they let you play like 10 hands and then you got to buy it. I'm like, fuck this. I was about to give up. Then I found this, this game. It's, it's called a uh, pineapple poker. And the app, first of all, you don't have to sign in with like your Facebook or anything like that. There's no ads on it. Um, the gameplay, the graphics, everything about it, it moves fast. It's great. You can play with your friends. You can play against the computer. Although I will say the computer opponents are ridiculously weak. I don't know why such a well-designed game has computers that play this game so badly. This is a game tailor-made for computers, which is why it never really will catch on online because people are going to be afraid of bots, rightly so. But you would think this guy who made such a brilliant game could have strong computer players. They're not. They're terrible. So don't get this game and start crushing the computer and think you're any good at the game. You got to The bots suck on the game. But you can play against your friends. Um, and... It's free. It's totally free. I, I, I'm really floored at how good this app is and that it costs absolutely nothing and they don't run ads. I don't get it. I think what's going to happen is that once it gets popular enough, he's going to change over and start charging for it. But that day is not today. So, um, and like I said, even if you're not a poker player, this is a game that is ridiculously enjoyable. I mean, it's, it's just an action paced. It, it's fantastic. So anyway, essential for poker players because this game you will have opportunity i believe when this game truly explodes um you have an opportunity to start studying this game get good at it so you can take advantage of all the new people who don't know what the fuck they do they're doing because you really have to know what you're doing in this game uh if you want to win consistently so get it and even if you're not into that into poker fuck it it's free now here's where you can download it unfortunately it's only for um I, as I as as far as I know, it's only available for iPhone. I don't think they have an Android version yet, but I think he's working on it. Um, there's the app, Pineapple Open Face Chinese Poker. Find me on there if you want to play a game. My username is Point Prime P O I N T P R I M E. Um, highly recommended. Um, get in on the ground floor on this game. It's a doozy. All right, let's talk. Uh, let's do the uh, FDA talk here. Um, let me give a second for my guest to call in. Stand by. So there was a there was a meeting. A lot of uh, ethic act activists and groups and doctors and lawyers and they went to Washington D.C. last week to talk to the FDA about electronic cigarettes. I, I was able to catch a little bit of the testimony online, but uh, I, I didn't see most of it. 
Ed, uh, everybody's favorite caller, formerly known as Tom Baker, presently known as Edward Wolf, with his VIA organization, was there. Oh, shit. I forgot to talk about the FEMA letter. Okay, that's okay. That's fine. Let's talk about the FEMA letter because uh, Ed says he's got uh, something to say about that, too. Okay, so anyway, first, the FEMA letter. Now, this is not the FEMA, you know, emergency med uh, emergency uh, services part of the federal government. This is a, uh, well, shit, what is their, uh, they're, 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 a, they're a trade association of uh, companies that make flavors, not, not for e-liquid. These are companies that make flavors that ultimately do get used in e-liquids, but primarily what they're making these flavors for, for food. Now, a lot of people are buying this stuff, and FEMA is a trade organization. They have no real power, but some things have happened since they published a letter about e-cigarettes. Basically, what they're doing is they're strongly encouraging the members, the manufacturers of flavors who are a part of this association, which is the Flavor and Extract Manufacturers Association, strongly encouraging them to not sell to these companies that are e-liquid manufacturers. And you know what? Honestly, I don't blame them. Um, not that we're doing anything wrong or not that most manufacturers are doing anything wrong. Think about it. They're making, they're making fucking flavor for, I don't know, for Kraft macaroni and cheese and making stuff for that they could use in perfume for fucking Calvin Klein or I don't know. Why would they want to dick around with us? We're less than five. At best, we're less than 5% of their business. And they're saying, and fucking Yankee Candle and every, everyone else who, who uses these flavors for products, e-cigs are a drop in the bucket for them. And basically what this association is saying is, don't fuck around with these guys. We don't know what else they're putting in this this, this liquid. We don't know how safe it is. And this is, this is fair conservative ground for them to stand... They don't want to, they're saying, don't fuck around with this. You know, we don't know what each one of these companies is doing. We don't know what else is going in besides our product. And stay away from them. Stay away from the industry. Save yourself a lawsuit maybe down the line. And it seems to, um, seems to have had some effect. There might be other things going down on this, but here's a, here's an example from a letter that somebody got. Um, someone, uh, uh, an e-liquid manufacturer posted on Reddit. It said, um, looks like the FDA is now pressuring the flavoring industry. For the past several months, we have been working with a specialty flavoring manufacturer to develop, to develop flavors that we weren't able to find from other sources without dictones. I just received this email from my contact here. Good afternoon, with a heavy heart, and upon the advice council, I'm sorry, the advice of our council and from FEMA, we cannot sell to the e-cigarette industry. I'm incredibly sorry for any inconvenience this may cause you. These types of letters have been received by many e-liquid manufacturers from many different flavoring manufacturer companies. So what's the rub? Well, this isn't good for us. Um, these flavoring companies who were either ignorant or just unaware of who they were selling to are now making it a priority to find out exactly who they're selling to and not selling to you if you are in the e-liquid manufacturing business. Now that now that this FEMA trade organization certainly does not make up all of the flavoring companies in, in the country or in the world for that matter, but it's enough to create a problem. Companies who were previously getting product 
without any problem are now not. At least for some flavors. Um, it's, uh, it's a weird thing. Now, Tom, you, I'm sorry, Ed, you said you had, uh, before we talk about the FDA session, you said you had some extra information about this, right? Uh, am I on? You are. Okay. Yeah, I just posted a link in chat. Uh, what that is, is a list of 105, by my count, uh, of the different flavors that possibly could have respiratory effects. Okay. And uh, the reason why I actually was searching for this uh, before I heard the show um, is because often they talk about how, you know, there's all these different flavors and we're going to need to test every single one. And I had seen one OSHA thing before that talked about a subset of flavors that, that could be. So in that thing, in the table at the bottom, if you look at that, and that is from FEMA, uh, there are 27 high priority and there is uh, 78 low priority uh, flavors that could possibly have uh, respiratory effects. And so I asked, uh, actually, you, uh, one of your last guests, Ian, uh, of those that he saw, how many did he think that were necessary and, and used in uh, vaping products? He thought about 20 of them. Uh, and a couple notes that he told me was that I think banana was one of the flavors that, that had to be done that way. Um, but so uh, the, the reason why I wanted to say something is because there is a smaller set of items that need to be looked at. Uh, diastole was obviously something that's been talked about, so with, so with AP, but there, there's a pretty small set of things that could be, um, could be a, a flavoring and inhalation risk, and that, that is being tracked by FEMA for a while. Now that's, a, okay, so that's according to them, first of all, but second of all, they are, they're not telling their, their members, uh, they're not saying, well, you know, just, uh, you know, don't sell these flavors. They're saying don't do business with e-liquid companies, period. It's a big difference. Yeah, the document that I posted in chat is something from 2012, and it's kind of a, an entire, it's a 32-page overview of the entire issue for the industry, uh, independent of electronic cigarettes, although I, I think it might have mentioned it there. Um, and, and this was an update to a, a, a something that they've done before, uh, I think they said they took some flavors from the from the higher uh, from the lower list and put them into the higher list, but they did not expand them. So the entire universe of flavors that could be characterized as being something that needs to be evaluated for risk is 105 items, and of those, only 27 are high priority. And I think the low priority there's a pretty good chance that, that that's uh, that's yeah. trivial because it would have. They would have switched it. So I'm just saying that that uh, this is what they they themselves are saying. It was mentioned. Uh, it was interesting because one of the speakers that was talking about flavors at the FDA did mention that letter, uh, and she said, "Well, look, it's it's this was letter was uh, you know written on March 3rd, and you know that was on March uh, what was it 9th uh, that uh, it was done. So there could have been some prompting." Uh, to get that letter out. Um, I'm not saying I know anything, but it was kind of uh, remarkable to me, uh, or noteworthy, that is, that uh, this actually was presented, uh, that letter yeah. was presented. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting timing. Uh, there's a lot of things that could be going on. Now, ultimately, FEMA, despite having 
the name of an organization that sounds like a government organization. They are not. They're a trade association. They actually don't have any power to regulate or mandate anything, you know, other than, you know, tell their members, well, if you want to be a member, you got to play by our rules. They don't they don't have the power of government to do anything at all. Uh, the FDA, on the other hand, does. And if there is something going on behind the scenes with the FDA, that's information that hasn't come out yet, though, I don't know, it kind of sounds likely. Um, fortunately, there are a lot of flavoring manufacturers that are not in the United States, so the FDA won't be able to do anything ever to any of those companies, but there are some that are operating in the United States, and certainly there's a large number of flavoring, flavor compounders like Perfumer's Apprentice and you know all the, all the rest of them who, uh, you know, their business could be impacted greatly by this, which would uh, affect the smaller e-liquid manufacturers. There are even some larger e-liquid manufacturers who are making the flavors themselves, and this does directly impact them. Um, what's going to happen with this? Where is everything coming from? It's going to play out, and I believe it started now, but I think this is basically a squeeze. They are trying to put, I, I believe, the FDA is behind trying to pressure these companies that are making these products that are generally safe, for digestion, uh, trying to pressure them into stop selling these products to companies that are using them for inhalation. Now, you could always say, well, all right, well, just make a DBA or just make another LLC and, you know, call it, you know, happy time uh, apple pies or, you know, you know, granny's baking company or something like that. And they'll sell to you. And that's true, maybe. Um, but I think it's I think it's a risk that people aren't really going to be willing to take. Um I don't know. We'll see. What, do you have any other thoughts on this? Uh, just that if if they sell, I don't know how many different flavors that is in the world of the flavor house. Uh, but if they sell, say, a thousand different flavors, they only have a list of 105 that uh, they should even question about selling. So they should be able to sell all those other ones. Uh, but with people like uh, Flavor Art out there, uh, who uh, who's improving their North American position right now, I, I don't see any. If, the, if, if a company doesn't want to sell you a flavor, then uh, there's better choices out there anyway. So Yeah. Well, it's certainly, it's certainly something that's uncomfortable for several companies right now, and hopefully, uh, hopefully this will get better as they go to other choices, you know, be it worldwide or, other, or whatever. Um, it's certainly uncomfortable now. Hopefully this is something that will not get worse, um, but that's rarely the case in this, uh, in this world of vaping. So anyway, tell us, uh, tell us about um, the FDA workshop. Or, or what, what was it? Was it called a workshop? or was it? Yeah, they're doing three different workshops. There was the first one uh, that was uh, that they did about what three months ago, and then there was this last one, and there will be one last final one uh, that is done. Uh, this one, uh, the first one, was pretty much uh, like uh, you know, electronic cigarettes one hundred and one. It was really, really basic information. Uh, there wasn't really any scientific studies put out and some of the stuff where it was just you know what is an e-cigarette um, and they also talked a little bit about batteries and things like that uh, this one was much more focused on the science and they had just a lot of different presentations that they did uh, on the science and I would say that uh, it, it was it was much more valuable and it was actually much more serious than what was done prior okay so what did you do well, there was a public comment period, um, and so what I did is I put together a presentation of what I thought was useful, uh, describing what VIA was going to try and do, uh, giving a background on advocacy uh, and uh, 
And it, I've already posted that into the chat. Uh, so people, that's, that's a PDF. If people want to download it, that's fine. It's 15 pages long. And um, because that, are, you know, any of the speakers were only given 15 minutes, uh, sorry, uh, three minutes to, uh, to talk, uh, I obviously could not use uh, most of that presentation. But, however, it is now part of the record. Uh, it is submitted, and they do have to uh, consider it to some degree. Uh, also, um, that there is a public comment period that has been opened up for this workshop. So uh, I'm not exactly sure how the, that public comment period is going to be uh, factored in, but I, I have a feeling, that, uh, or I'm going to definitely verify, that it is the same as the other comment periods that they they're obligated to take a look at it. So uh, I think actually Dimitri posted that link to that public comment period. So that is open for people to comment too. Um, so uh, the, the presentation that I did uh, in the three minutes that I was able to, I focused on just a, a quick uh, word of what uh, VIA is trying to do, which is a group effort to uh, to address the regulations. And then uh, I made a point that you know all vapors uh, want to quit smoking, and that all uh, that they want everybody else to quit smoking, and that the evidence of of millions of people saying they've quit should be sufficient uh, as scientific proof, uh, and that if they're if they're, if they're ignoring it, it's really bad science. Um, the next item I uh, talked to was about flavors, uh, and there was. On, on day one of the event, uh, there was a speaker that uh, got up there and talked about flavors. It's actually the same one that uh, did the uh, FEMA presentation. Uh, and she did a study of uh, adolescents in uh, Southern California, which uh, came out that they prefer sweet flavors. Um, and so I actually asked the question uh, for her and got it submitted, and then he asked it, which my question was, uh, do they... Uh, uh, what flavors do adults prefer, and uh, wouldn't the list be exactly the same as adolescents? Uh, and her response was simply, I don't know, and then she sat down. So uh, when I did, the next day in, in, the, in the presentation, I, I really wanted to hammer on that because there is absolutely no reason to believe that adults prefer any different flavors than would adolescents. Uh, so... I made the point that there is no such thing as a flavored uh, tobacco ice cream. Nobody really enjoys tobacco, uh, the taste of it. So, you know, that's why flavor is important. And that's, it's also that adults would want the same flavors. And uh, the last point that I made uh, in, in that public comments uh, period was uh, about hardware and how the FDA regulations do not allow them to go after hardware which does not have nicotine. And they specifically say that if they were to go that route, that they would have to issue a new rule and have a new comment period. And additionally, in the financial of the deeming, it says that they have not considered uh, hardware without nicotine. And they have not uh, evaluated the financial impacts of it. And then the, the point that I made is that uh, because n that none of the hardware manufacturers were there, um, and the reason why they weren't there is that because they had been told that information. So I wanted to stake out that ground that, you know, people like Inco and, and, and Kinger and, and Aspire and these other people were not there giving comments because of what the rules say to try and really, you know, make sure that they know that those are the words they've already used and they can't just kind of fudge it in at the end. So th that was my three minutes. That's how I spent it.
what else did you see when you were there? I, I caught a little bit of the last, uh, the last day and there were some people advocating for e-cigarettes in front of the workshop, but I, from looking at the agenda, it appears at least that there were several groups talking about potential dangers and, you know, we're generally against e-cigarettes and for, uh, strict regulation. Uh, tell us just more about what you saw on both sides. Well, I mean, I didn't see any, you know, group of people advocating outside. Is that were you saying that there was some sort of no the speaker outside no. of the workshop? No, 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 no. During during the workshop, I don't know if you saw every minute of it, but like I said, I saw some people speaking for e-cigarettes. But I saw in the agenda there were some uh, scientists and public health advocates that were speaking against it. I was just get, trying to get your comments on the different types of presentations you saw on both sides. Right. It, there, there, it was more on the science side. So the people that were against electronic cigarettes, it was much more of a, of a slighted, uh, uh, sleight of hand type of thing against it. There was nobody really a big negative person. The ALA, the uh, ACS, and those people were not there, not at least that I saw and not speakers. So it, most of the people were actually pro e-cigarettes or trying to present the science. The, the person that was the most there, there was a person that got up there uh, and she talked about, uh, she was from uh, NIOSH. Uh, what's that? Uh, uh, whatever that stands for. I forgot what right now. Uh, national uh, something. Uh, yeah. They're the ones that th set th the diacetyl standards for inhalation. Yeah. There was a lady, a lady there that presented and, and she boiled it down her full half an hour. It came out to be basically diastole's bad. And I don't think that anybody that's serious is still debating that. Uh, and so it was that she was the most overtly negative uh, towards these cigarettes. The next one, uh, as far as the speakers, then there were some people in the public uh, comments that, that were against e-cigarettes, but, but really, um, the other one was the flavor lady, obviously that, that studied adolescents in, uh, Southern California and found that they were interested in e-cigarettes. Uh, and they did some of that stuff with adolescents, uh, and the, uh, propensity of, of kids. Uh, Mitch Zeller at the beginning talked about, um, the, uh, that there's more, I think, adolescents now using electronic cigarettes than smoking there's some number out there like that but i'm not 100 percent sure on, on that study i think it was something recent that he was referring to okay all right well um you know it's interesting when you hear about like this whole process with the fda and the, the time it takes to go through this if you compare that and how slow they're moving and how i think you are correct in stating they can't even touch the hardware, and uh, they're not involved with taxation at all on any of this, you know. So it's it's um it's a scary um, scope because it is, you know, it's the law of the land. It's federal, you know. So it's scary as to what might happen. But com if you compare that to what happens on the local level, where they can just swing the hammer at any time with virtually no notice, and in a week, you know, ban vaping everywhere. Uh, drastically inc increase the the taxes, like do all these horrible things, you know, basically put people out of business and the, the whole nine. That can happen in, you know, in weeks, you know, if you even need to use the plural tense. Whereas with the FDA, this thing, th this takes years. Um, th everything's scary, but honestly, the local fights, what's going on, I'll talk about Indiana in a second. I mean, it's way, way scarier. 
Yeah, I mean, and when I posted on ECF back in November of 2013, that, that was my main point. And when I came on with you and when I came on with, uh, with Kevin, uh, you know, you guys asked me what my main point was, and I, and I said it was the local fights. The local fights are, are really, I think I used the expression, they're, they're cracking people's heads right now. They can create a dry county in different places, uh, you know, the ability to fight that. I mean, right now, the, the pace of what they're doing is, is just absolutely incredible. Uh, it seems like everything is hitting the fan all at once. And, uh, you know, what I think this is going to be is the year of the taxes. Uh, they've, like in California, uh, they declared it a sin. They said it's a public health mm -hmm. uh, risk. So mm -hmm. they just they didn't have anything to do it. They, they just declared it. And so now they can hit it with taxes. And so... Um, Kevin on his show was talking about some of the people in Connecticut uh, when he walked up to one person uh, and said, uh, uh, you know, you guys uh, are going to be taxing this stuff. And, and the politician turned to him and said, oh, yeah, totally. I mean, just he just said uh, to, to Kevin, you know, oh, yeah, absolutely, that's what we're going to do. Uh, and Kevin said he was going to use that in his public comments. But it, they're going after it on the taxes, and one of the things that uh, that they can do is they can use the – ambiguity of the FDA to justify their, mm -hmm. uh, their, their positions. And, and they do it every single time or, or most of the time they say the FDA still doesn't know. And so until we don't know, uh, until we know we have to, uh, we have to go after it. Mm -hmm. um, and there was, there was positive studies that were presented. There was one guy that uh, presented what I was uh, pretty interested in and I haven't been able to go back and get all the slides and everything, but he was, measuring harm or, or effect through uh, blood analysis rather than, you know, anything else. So they, they would take a vapor and uh, they would draw their blood. And the comparisons, when it all boiled down to, were really, really close to a non-smoker. I mean, some of these levels, they were just not even close to smoking and, and really, really close to a non-smoker, except for the one, uh, it's some sort of word that uh, starts with C-O-N-T-I-N or something. It's the, uh, I think it's the... Uh, the chemical uh, that uh, is released when nicotine is in the system. So it showed that. I mean, so they, they saw that nicotine was, was being absorbed, but they didn't see, um, you know, any of the other harmful effects. There's a lot of information that was presented on that. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, there, were, there was one thing that a guy got up and, and presented on uh, propylene glycol and uh, vegetable glycerin. And there, there's good data on that that shows that it's safe. Um, and one of the things that he was talking about is that NASA did something uh, for the people in space uh, where they had that quantified. And, you know, they were getting 100%, you know, 100% of the time they were being exposed to certain levels of that. And, um, you know, they, there was no, and it's obviously in space, there's no way to get rid of it. And the safety of that stuff was pretty good. The only kind of interesting thing is that uh, there is some data that uh, either PG or VG causes a weight gain. In, in the mice where they studied it and, uh, you know, looking at my fat ass, it, I, it, there could be something on that one. It was, uh, but, but the safety of, of, uh, of that, there really, when, when you boil it down, there's, there's people that were also talking about nicotine and, and there's, everybody kind of agrees that there, there can be effects of that, but it's, it's not a carcinogen. Um, and the only place where they have anything to go at is the flavors. And it makes sense for them to go at the flavors. Uh, because that, that's only the, un, the unknown. So that's why after the meeting, I went and looked at FEMA stuff. There's 105 total, 27, you know, ones to really look at. 
and the rest is should be good to go. Um, one of the things that I'm concerned about is that uh, when they were presenting on the food safety aspect of flavorings, they were completely discounting the fact that when those uh, you know grass standards were established and we uh, accepted as safe or regarded as safe, uh, that there had to be some sort of evaluation of the vapors of those items uh, because they're used in cooking. So it, it, it can't be just from square one. A grass standard can't just be from square one. There has to be some sort of evaluation of the uh, of that. And FEMA would obviously be concerned about that because, you know, there's cooks using these things every single day. They're cooking the flavorings all the time. So, um, I mean, I think there's a few my, – my belief is that there's a few ones to be concerned about, the ones that you've already mentioned on your show several times. But after that, it, it should be pretty clear sailing. Um, and, uh, you know, Dr. F talked about the formaldehyde, uh, and he pushed back on that pretty well. Um, and what other things I, po I posted a little write up of the different things, uh, of what I saw at the thing, just, just 20 different items. Uh, the people that I saw that were there from the industry were, uh, Mr. E-Liquid, uh, Nick Vape was over there, AMSA, uh, Ben Johnson E-Liquid, uh, Azim Shahandre or Shahari was there, uh, Lou Ritter uh, from uh, AIMSA and ERF was there, uh, Link, Link Williams was there, he actually got up on the panel and he spoke, so that was pretty good. The guy bought me lunch, so I'm a big fan of him, uh, and uh, what else was going on? Uh, uh, I mean, it, 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 was, it was worth my time to go, I think, uh, so, you know, I flew my own butt out there. Uh, there wasn't, uh, Bill Godshell was, uh, was, did his thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Carl Phillips uh, spoke uh, for Casa, kind of. Uh, and what, what, what I noticed is that he did not disclose his conflicts of interest. And at the meeting, everybody was told to disclose their conflicts of interest. Every single person did. Now, he gets major funding from British American Tobacco and Imperial Tobacco. And, you know, he's still working off those grants. You know, the last time I saw his disclosure, it was in November, and he still has to disclose that he is getting most of his money that he uses for his mortgage and whatever else from big tobacco. And so when he didn't disclose that, at least I noticed. Uh, and when, when he said that he could not get any of the CASA scientists up there to speak, you know, that might have been a reason why. I, I'm not exactly sure, but I sure do think that he should disclose that he works for big tobacco. Um, that's interesting. And, is there, uh, is there, Greg Conley was there. And well, well, hold on a second. Hold, hold on a second. That, voice. Hold on a second. Uh, hold on a second. Uh, that was kind of interesting. So you, you have to disclose these associations that you may have or these conflicts of interest, whatever you want to call it. So Carl gets money from tobacco. I think that's, I don't know if it's widely known, but, um, for those who do know, no, yeah, it's true. Um, so what could happen? I mean, is, is that, what were the consequences for that? Are there are there consequences? I don't even know. I, well, I just think it reflects well, uh, not not very well. That is that 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 that's being done uh, from a consumer group, uh, which is essentially astroturf on steroids. So that that he then points out that the people that he wanted to try and get Casada to speak weren't allowed to speak. 
I mean, it was it was hardcore that everybody had to disclose their conflicts. Everybody, and then they did. Sometimes they made people. They had a panel up there, and everybody had most of the people that already spoke. And then they made people go through and do their disclosures one by one. And then, like Doctor F was up there, and he said, "My disclosures were already on my slides." And then they went down the rest of the list. But you know, like when Link Williams went up there, he had to dis, you know disclose. So I mean. It, it, it's just a credibility factor. Yeah. Well, well hold on a um, second. Let me, you know, there's. Let me ask you something. So you're you're saying that that when Carl went up there, he said that none of the other Casa people were allowed or a, did he say allowed or able to come testify? Because I mean, you're a guy. Your organization, you got this via thing, which is you know basically just you at this point, as as far as I know. So you got this thing. You got a PowerPoint. That's your organization. I'm not trying to play you down Tom uh, no, and, no, but it's, I mean I, I understand what you're yeah. saying Go so ahead. so like you were able to get a speaking spot at this workshop whereas Casa has been around since 2009 or 8 perhaps and they weren't able to is that was that Carl's position that they weren't able to get a the, the scientists weren't able to get a speaking spot but 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 fucking Tom Baker can well no I mean yes and no I mean I think there's just a I spoke at the public comment period. Carl spoke at the public comment period. Greg Conley did. So did uh, so did some some other people. Frida Vape actually was there, and they spoke at the public comment period. Um, and there were there was a few different people, you know. And one thing they kind of screwed us all on is that of the people that signed up to the talk, maybe half or less than half were there. So we only got three minutes. And, and there was supposed to be a whole bunch of other people. But when Carl got up, the, the, the text of his speech was that, uh, you know, he should ref people should refer to uh, vapors as people and not uh, like uh, uh, some sort of machines. He was very critical of all the science that had been presented and uh, was saying that, you know, CASA had made application to have four of its scientists to speak uh, and that they were all rejected as panelists. And, and I think that in general, if, you, if you're, you know, coming across as shady, not disclosing your, your, your conflicts of interest, and then you're the chief operating officer of, of CASA and getting paid by CASA, and it, to me that, that's the only consequence is that, is that all the people that are in CASA and wanting their voice to be heard, it might be being clamped down on. Um, but he, he spoke for the three minutes, but he had said in those three minutes that four other scientists from the vaping world were not allowed to speak. And, you know, the FDA is a bunch of assholes for not letting him up there, essentially boiling mm. it all down. That's very interesting. And now, now hold on now. Farsalinos, did he did? So did Farsalinos speak? It seems like there were two sections. There were like official presentations and then public comments. Where where did Farsalino speak? Okay, the the, the majority ninety five percent or ninety percent one of the two of of this time were panelists and speakers. Okay, and then just about forty five minutes max was to the the public comments, and that's okay. when anybody that applied for a public. Uh, Spike, uh, I don't know her last name. She was there, and she said that she applied too late, uh, you know, like a day late to be a speaker, and so she she wasn't allowed. And so uh, there was a whole ton of empty seats. So you know, 
whatever, 45 divided by three. Uh, so right. there, there was about 15 speakers. And so we all got to speak. But what he was saying is that the, the Kassaw scientists, maybe himself or Dr. Rodu or, or whoever else that Kassaw wanted to put up there, they had four of them, and all of them were rejected as panelists and or speakers. Dr. F was a speaker where he gave a presentation, uh, and a lot of it was on... Uh, on uh, formaldehyde and some other things. Uh, I think he was, I think he was foreshadowing some of his new studies, Sure, but he was, he was talking about that. And then later on, he was a panelist. Okay. So, okay. So you went for that. That that answers my question. So, so what Kassa was trying to get their people to be on, they were unsuccessful or denied or whatever. Yet Farsalinos was able to do it, which that says something. And Link, and Link Williams was able to do it. And right. Link was not a speaker, but he was giving up. He was the only person that was really a vapor vapor uh, that got up um, and was on the panel. Um, so I know Lou Redder was there too, but Link was the guy that was sitting up on the panel. And he's kind of had pretty good luck with the FDA uh, because in a 2012 thing, uh, I was looking at the testimony and and the FDA really asked him a lot of questions about his own personal experience. So mm -hmm. uh, he's he's been a pretty good lobbyist, or, or maybe that's not the right word these days, but he's been a pretty good advocate uh, in front of the FDA. So he got up there. Um, yeah. So well, you, you know what? It sounds like it was an interesting, uh, you know, workshop. Uh, sound, I'm glad you got to go and meet people, and sounds like everybody learned something uh, for. But the most important, uh, not the most important, the most interesting thing you told me is that that Kassah thing, the fact that Phillips doesn't disclose that he gets tobacco money and that Kassah couldn't get a seat. Uh, now, you could chalk that up to the FDA just being assholes, but, well, Dr. F got a seat. 90 seconds. Sorry, Dr. F got a seat. Why Why couldn't they? So It, it just kind of begs the question. Link, um, Williams, Link Williams got a seat, too. Sure. So, like, you know, whatever the, you know, people were able to get these seats. Um, I think people would like to think um, that Kassad can get a seat and talk in front of the FDA, but apparently they, in in this circumstance at least, they can't. Um, and that's troubling. 60 seconds. Post uh, uh, Carl's, the text, he posted the, the text uh, of his yeah. speech. I mean, I can, I can get sure. that to you, uh, you know, right when I get off the phone. Sure. Um, let me just, um, I mean, I think it was, I think if you were to ask me what, what my opinion is of where it is with the FDA is that the hard part is going to be the, um, the, the approval process still. Uh, I think that they absolutely know that they don't have any smoking gun as far as harm. Uh, it, you know, every, it, it's safer and, and it is safer and all the data is in the show. It's safer. They, they can, they got a few people get up there talking about, well, it's unknown. And one doctor was uh, up there with a Dr. F panelist, uh, and he was saying, well, we, we need scientific studies. And I think Ten Dr. F really, you know, pushed back on him uh, hard. Uh, but, you know, the studies are coming in fast and furious. So the, 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 the data is going to be there. Uh, the, the question then is uh, what's going to happen with the grandfather date. And uh, Zine was over there, and, and I asked him, uh, you know, off to the side, and and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's touch and go if, if, uh, if they're going to be able to, to change it. But if the grandfather date gets changed, it, it will radically shake up everything. 
And, and I think that the FDA is well aware of that, and I, so I'm not sure how they're handling it. But if the Congress just steps in and changes the grandfather date, that's really going to be a giant shakeup. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But I think the, the more science that comes in, the, the more it shows that, that the product is safe. One, one lady got up there and she did, she did this whole little spectrum analysis and this whole little three-dimensional graph of all the different, you know, the number of particles and the size of the particles and then the next slide she put up there was other studies have said that these are the constituents within the e-liquid, and they would have, like, tin and all these other things. So she took her one, which was a count of the number and the size of, the, of, the, of them, and she combined it with other data that said, oh, well, it must just be all of these things that's inside there, which is just you can't do that. You can't count and then use the identification from another study and say, well, it's all these. Um, so... One of the things that I've at the last conference, there was a lady that got up there, uh, and I was able to ask her a question that she said that they found tin and some of these other metals uh, in the, the stuff that she used, and she was using cardamizers. So my question is, if you take a pro tank that's all stainless and using silicon and uh, and uh, you know glass, and and other than that, it's just canthal. You know, what, how could you find these things inside of them? Are you going to be testing these other devices? Because the tin and the metal that you're finding is from the cardamizer. It's definitely from the cardamizer. And uh, so uh, she said, well, you know, we, we didn't test this. We tested this two years ago, and we hope to be studying that. So one of the, the problems with some of the other things with the, the particle size and the stuff that they're finding in, uh, in the e-liquid is that they're using old equipment and they're not really just evaluating the vapor that comes off of you know from the e-liquid it's all going to boil down to the e-liquid um, yeah and that's what i've been saying i think um, you're right and, actually. and the, just the, the absolute pace of the the local fights by the time the fda comes in uh it, and this is what I, that I said back you know uh, a long time ago and and hopefully some people well, anyway, the, it, the local fights, if they can create a dry county, they can do the same thing with e-cigarettes. And we're seeing it all over the place with Indiana, especially, uh, that they can, they can do what they want. Um, and uh, John Oliver did a pretty good thing talking about uh, what can be done at the state level. And that, you know, a lot of these politicians run unopposed. Yeah. Well, listen, hey, thanks for the update. Very, in very interesting stuff, actually. And... Um... Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it shakes out. But it sounds like some of your predictions have been coming true lately. But uh, hey, thanks for oh, calling. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not, not. Yeah, not even a prediction. It's just an identification. You know, mm -hmm. you, you see them coming, and they've got their clubs out, and that's how they're doing it. Yeah, um, and they're beating, beating uh, yeah. the heads up. So, um, yeah. and so uh, that's that's pretty much the update. Uh, and uh, otherwise, uh, I'm still trying to get a large player of some sort. Uh, there is some interest. Um, you know, for VIA, for doing this in an organized way. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm certainly not asking for anybody's money, and uh, we'll see what happens if uh, if it can catalyze and, and grow into something or, or not. All right, well, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, same way, uh, vapingindustry at gmail.com. I posted the link where I posted the presentation. Uh, I can do that again. Um and uh, they can get a hold of me on Facebook under Edward A. Wolf. Um, and uh, I'm obviously, uh, I post on your uh, ClickBank Facebook, so that'd be one way. It uh, mm -hmm. doesn't take much to find uh, 
find me in there. Okay, good enough. Hey, thanks again. Um, and I will talk to you soon, right. sir. Much appreciated. There he goes, everybody. Ed Wolf from Via. That was actually some interesting stuff in there. Very good. Okay, I want to talk about this. This 11-year-old kid, honor student, never been in trouble before at school, certainly not for drugs. He got suspended from school for a year. Not because he had any drugs on him, but because he had a tree leaf that looked like marijuana, looked like a marijuana leaf. This is the kind of shit you just can't make up. A year. I remember back when I was in school, if somebody got caught actually smoking marijuana, like real smoking grass, right? Smoking actual marijuana. What do they do? They call the parents, right? That's a good idea. You know, sit the kid in the principal's office. And, you know, maybe, I don't know, kids got to write something on the blackboard 500 times or maybe do a report on how marijuana is, is bad, you know, certainly for kids. 11-year-olds should not be smoking marijuana. I think we can all agree with that. But anyway, that was it. There was no police involved. There was no, none of this other stuff suspended. Okay, maybe you get caught a couple times, sure. Suspend him for a couple of days. But here we're talking about an 11-year-old kid who had a tree leaf, not marijuana in any way, shape, or form simply resembled it, suspended for a year. And during that year, he had to go to the special school. You know what the special school is. That's where the actual druggies go. That's where they send all the kids who are actually smoking grass and doing God knows what else. So it's like kind of one of those things like, you know, innocent when an innocent man goes to jail, you know, he comes out with all the tools necessary to be a criminal. It's the same thing with kids when they go to these special schools. It's it's a shit show what goes on in there. And his mother didn't want him there and was forced to, to homeschool. It, it's it's almost, and, and so so you got to ask, what's the possible rationalization a school can have for a kid bringing a tree leaf in? And it's not even clear if he brought it in. The school is saying, well, he had this tree leaf and he was telling his friends that this is pot. But then his side of the story and his, and, and his parents' side of the story are saying that somebody just threw it in his bag as a joke and then like told on him, right? So let's just say, let's just go with the school side, right? That this kid did bring in a tree leaf that resembled a marijuana leaf and was telling his friends that it was marijuana. Let's just assume the worst, right? Does that even merit a one-day suspension, much less 365 days? No. I mean, I remember when, when when we were kids, when I was a kid, we used to get that, you, you know those little pouches? You get, it was basically like the pixie stick stuff. You, you had this this one piece of sugar that you would lick. It was like a, almost looked like a tongue, tongue depressor or some shit. So you lick that, and then you dip that inside a, 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 a packet of sugar, and then you suck the sugar off the sugar stuff. Well, anyway, we knew what cocaine and lines of cocaine looked like 
when we were 11, not because we had ever seen them, but because the D.A.R.E. people would come to school and show us pictures of what all these drugs look like. So we knew. So we would take the pixie stick stuff and, you know, put it out on, on the thing and say, uh, you know, you just, you fucking 11-year-old kid, you pretend, for God's sakes. You're 11, what is that? Sixth grade? Everything's pretend. So what's the justification that the school had? They said, and they stuck to it because, I mean, this leaf, you know, the police were called, of course. So they called the police. They test the leaf. It's got nothing to do with marijuana. It's not marijuana at all. It's a different, it has nothing to do with marijuana. They tested it three fucking times. It is not marijuana. So you would think the school would say, hey, gee, sorry about that. No. They stuck to their guns, stuck to the one-year suspension. Why? Because it resembles it, and that is all that is needed, is that either it resembles it or another student thinks it resembles it. This is the burden put on a school for, for a, a huge suspension. All another kid has to say is that that kid as something that looks like drugs. Never mind that if this was an actual marijuana leaf, you couldn't fucking do anything with it. You certainly couldn't get high off it. No, no, forget that. If it just looks like that thing that can't do anything, if it just looks like it. A year. This kid's life has effectively been ruined. I mean, he can't have contact with any of his friends for any extracurricular school activities, can't go to that school. Can you imagine being 11 and something like that, a total nothing, fucking up your whole life? Your whole, at least at least now, you know? You don't get to see your, 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 your friends anymore. You're labeled this horrible person when you didn't do anything. I mean, these people, these school administrators, they should be thrown in jail. This, this is not right. He's finally, after there was some outrage over this, and even the Washington Post picked up on this. Here's a couple of stories. One local from the local, a local paper and one from the Washington Post. Finally, he's allowed to return, return to school today, but not his old school. Can't see his old friends. They finally let him return to another normal school, just not his old one. I mean, if that's not scary to you as a parent, if you are one, shit. Strange days. Here's one. I don't know what category to put this in, but. Oh, real quick. I know I told you all that. Uh, the Jinx show is. is the absolute best thing ever. Well, Mr. Pickles is nothing like the Mr. Pickles is a is a cartoon about a satanic dog. It's actually not clear if he's satanic or just actually Satan. Um, is very very twisted, very very horny, very, does horrible things, mutilation. It's uh, you've never seen you've never seen a show like Mr. Pickles, but he's devoted to 
his 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 family that li- that he lives with and and his uh and his best friend Tommy, the little boy. So Mr. Pickles does some good and he does some very naughty and it is uh quite the show. Anyway, this you could just see on the Adult Swim website. I highly recommend to you go watch Mr. Pickles. It's a it's something else. Anyway, so this last thing, I don't know what category to put this in. There was a you know the I think Edward Ed mentioned uh John Oliver who does uh, last week tonight, which is often phenomenal. He has these you know 18 minute monologues which are you know well put together, brilliant, you know very very interesting stuff. He did one on drones and um, there was some discussion that I noticed about it. And there was somebody from uh, from not America, you know, somewhere else, who in the comment asked the following question. Says, how do you as people, meaning Americans, how do you Americans walk around head held high knowing that every few months you are committing a 9-11 event to other people? Imagine if the 9-11 terror attacks were happening in America every few months, again and again, innocent people dying all around you, your brothers and your sisters for no reason. And again, his question is, how do you people, how do you Americans walk around head held high? Is he exaggerating? Um, Yes, uh, there are not 9-11 events happening every week, but there are, again, they were talking about this piece on drones, there are innocent people all over the world dying all the time. Many more innocent people than the terrorists were actually targeting with these drone strikes. And if you just look at the civilian damage and casualties done in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the other 20 places that we're technically at war with, not technically, but actually at war, I mean, it's, it's devastating. Innocent people are dying all over the place, and it should not be any surprise that the family members who survive are drawn to some sort of extremism or, or just want some sort of justice. It's not surprising at all. So someone who responded to this comment, how do you help, how do you walk? How do you Americans walk with your held your head held so high when your own government is creating atrocities every day? Well, someone from the armed forces, um, he responded. Many of us are unable. Many of us watched 9-11 and accepted the government's and media's definition of the attack as an act of war rather than a criminal action. A smaller portion, drifting along passively, thought that there was a major war coming. The people we knew were going to fight and die. Some of us may be worried about our youngest brother or sister, our younger brother being drafted, Despite being in college, now it seems stupid. But in the 72 hours after 9-11, some Americans may be suffering from depression, certainly with a mind shaped by comic books and action movies, ate up the us-versus-them, good-versus-evil rhetoric spouted by the then-cowboy-in-chief. After all, he was the president. And no matter how bright you might think of yourself, no matter how bright you might think yourself, you can still be swayed by passion and emotion. And that led to terrible decisions. Some of us, therefore, left our dorm rooms and walked down Main Street to the recruiter's office. 
Some of us were genuinely surprised the office wasn't full to bursting full of young men eager to avenge their fallen countrymen. Some of us were genuinely surprised when we had to push the recruiter to stop telling to, 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 to some of us were genuinely surprised when we had to push the recruiter to stop trying to sell desk jobs and just let us into the goddamn infantry. Some of us got enlisted then and went down to Georgia head high to mask the anxiety and fear that they might have had. Perhaps some number of Americans in this situation discovered that maybe it hadn't been the best idea, but would be goddamned if they were going to admit it and let everyone back home smugly remark on how right they were. So they persevere. They learn to work as a unit, to look past personality issues, to see each other as soldiers rather than a race or an economic status or any of the other things that people hate about each other. They learn to kill. Then some of these people, perhaps while sitting hungover in the platoon area in the Republic of Korea, hear that we have invaded Iraq. They have big, scary bombs, weapons of mass destruction, and Saddam Hussein, the secular Arab dictator, had somehow colluded with a devoutly religious OBL, Osama bin Laden, to attack the U.S. They hated our freedom. Don't you see? Then some of these young American men might transfer back to Georgia and be assigned to the 3rd Infantry Division and end up in Iraq in January of 2005. And maybe these kids, still drunk on Fox News and fantasies of glory and being renowned enough to win their ex-girlfriends back, are excited to go to Iraq. Sure, they hadn't found any weapons of mass destruction yet, and we had uh, Saddam Hussein in custody, but they were still somehow a threat and had to be dragged kicking and screaming into a Jeffersonian democracy. Inside every burqa is a good American yearning to break free. So you fight. You kill. You watch friends die. It's usually quick, almost never quiet, but for the rest of your life, when you remember sitting at the bar with them, they're blown open. You picture the night's you spent down at Scruffy Murphy's, but instead of the stupid hookah shell necklace, your, ball, your, your, your friend's jaw is blown off. His left eye is ruined, and he's screaming. You fight. You kill. You watch friends die. And you noticed a distinct lack of change. You kick in doors and tell terrified women to sit on the floor while you and your friends ransack their home, tearing the place apart because they might be hiding weapons. There's no reason to believe this house in particular is enemy. Same as for the next one, and the next after that, or the seven before. They just happened to be there, and maybe they had weapons. Probably not. They almost never did. There were a few times when we had deliberate raids based on solid intel, and we turned up some stuff. But generally, we were just tossing houses because we could. Then maybe your mortar operator forgets to carry the remainder and drops a mess of mortars on the village you are supposed to you were supposed to protect. Maybe the big Iraqi guy running at you screaming was just mentally ill. Of course, you won't know this until after you're but seven rounds through his rib cage 
and is wailing. And his ancient mother is cradling his body and she's spitting at you. Maybe when you get back to the FOB, the platoon sergeant tells you that you did the right thing. Next time, it might be a suicide bomber. They tell you it was an honest mistake. It wasn't your fault. They tell you to get some chow, take a shower if the water works, and sleep it off. You did work. You did, you did good work that day, apparently. During chow, the TV's on AFN, and they're rebroadcasting some Fox News show. And you're hearing about drone strikes and the great things we're doing. And you can't help but see that poor dumb asshole's face looking past his mother as he bleeds to death. He's in pain, obviously. But he has the most perfectly confused look on his face. He doesn't comprehend what's happening. A little more hot sauce on your eggs doesn't really help. Then you realize you haven't seen anything to support the idea that these poor fuckers are a threat to your home. You look around and you see all the contractors making six-figure salaries to fix your shit, train, Iraqi, train Iraqis, maintain the ridiculous SUVs the KBR dicks ride around in. You consider the fact that every 25-millimeter shell costs about 40 bucks and your company has been handing out those fuckers like shrapnel-flavored parade candles. Candies, sorry. You think about all the fuel you're going through, all the ammo, all the missiles, all the grenades. You think about every time you lose a vehicle, the army buys a new one. Maybe you start to see a lot of people making a lot of money on huge amounts of human suffering. Then you realize that Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and John McCain don't respect you or your buddies. They don't give a fuck if you get a parade or a box when you get home. You're nothing to them but a prop. Then you get out and you hate the news. You hate the apathy. And you hate the murder being carried out in your name. You grew up wanting so bad to be Luke Skywalker. But you realize that you were basically a stormtrooper, a faceless, nameless rifleman, carrying a spear for empire. And you start to accept the startlingly obvious truth that these people, that these are people like you. Maybe your heart breaks a little bit every time some asshole bra brags about a successful drone strike. Your, your statement is correct enough. If all of America was one dude, that dude would not give a shit about the little brown people were burning and crushing and choking to death. We aren't all like that, but it makes me incredibly, profoundly sad to see what my country actually is. Some of us care, and I think there are more every day.